Good evening, church family. I hope and trust that you are doing well. It is a great joy of mine to be able to open God's Word together this evening as we remember what took place approximately 2,000 years ago, a historical occasion that is so momentous and so significant that language really seems to fail us when we consider how substantial these events were and are and will continue to be. This is the pinnacle of what the Old Testament saints looked forward towards and the pinnacle of what we now look back upon. This message will not be a a typical sermon per se, but I do want to look at a specific text in the Holy Scriptures tonight to guide our thinking. And because we have been going through the letters of 1 John on the Lord's Day and are getting familiar with His voice at this point, I thought it would be helpful for us to read his account of the crucifixion and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17 of chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. I will read the narrative through uh, verse 42. So John 19, 17 through 42. Let me first begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to your holy scriptures this evening with an expectant spirit. We know what we're about to read. In a lot of ways, this is is nothing new to our minds. But God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. Allow this historical narrative to, to grip our souls, maybe in ways that it never has before. May we never, ever grow callous to these events. But as we ponder their historicity and how they apply to us today, breathe in us a a fresh spirit, O God. We desire to grow closer to Christ, draw us near to Him. We desire to be more dependent upon the Holy Spirit, who in a few days from the account that we're about to read will raise your Son from the dead. Draw us near to Him. We desire to come to a more robust understanding of a our Father's love for us in sending His only begotten Son to grant us eternal life. Give us understanding. Glorify Yourself and bless Your people. We humbly ask in Christ's name. Amen. The text says this, starting in John chapter 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus and He went out bearing his own cross to the place they called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, 
They divided my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all that now has finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy-five pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had been, had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There are seemingly an infinite number of things that we could say about this text. And not only in this particular account from John, but certainly we would acknowledge that this isn't an exhaustive description of these particular events, as we can learn additional details from the other gospel writers. But as it relates to, to John's account here, this is the approach that, that I'm going to take this evening by way of outline. I would like to highlight three different verbs in these verses. I want us to take note of Jesus bearing in verse 17, Jesus seeing in verse 26, and Jesus giving in verse 30. Jesus bore, Jesus saw, Jesus gave. And our aim is to unpack these actions of Jesus and to seek to understand how they apply to us today. First, in verse 17, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. As James Montgomery Boyce, as well as uh, many others have noted, there is no more terrible death in the ancient Near East than crucifixion. The method of crucifixion was after the sentence was passed, the victim was first subjected to scourging, a punishment so severe that 
Many wouldn't even make it to being crucified. They would die from the scourging itself. In Jesus' case, this, the scourging actually took place before the final passing of the sentence, so, so that to, to, to invoke this sort of pity from the mob. Next in the sequence of events, the, the, the horizontal bar of the cross would be bound to the man's back, and he would then be led through the city while carrying his own cross. And a placard describing the crime in which he was to die for was carried before him. The individual would then arrive to the place of crucifixion, which in this case is the place of the skull called Golgotha. Then the victim would be stripped of their clothes as to further the shame. And the clothing became property of, of, the, of the soldiers usually. And then the horizontal bar that the criminal is bearing would be hoisted up to rest upon the vertical bar that had already been in place prepared to receive it. And then the victim's hands were nailed in place, and in some cases, as were the feet. And then began the waiting game. The crowd would spectate, not in this particular case, but sometimes for days, while the continued suffering occurred, and eventually the victim would die. John tells us in verse 17 that Jesus is bearing his own cross. He's carrying his own cross. He's being paraded through town, carrying his own execution chair. And this may be appropriate if he was guilty, but he's innocent. He's the man who knew no sin. He was tempted in all things, yet never sinned. We just learned in 1 John 3 that in him there is no sin. He's the unblemished, spotless lamb. He's innocent, pure, just, and good. And so, whose sentence is he really carrying? Brethren, this is a cross that should have been yours. This is a cross that should have been mine. I should have been the one being paraded through town. The innocent is bearing the cross on behalf of the guilty. The pure is bearing the cross on behalf of the impure. The good is bearing the cross on behalf of the wicked. The just is bearing the cross on behalf of the unjust. The righteous is carrying the cross of the unrighteous. Why? 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. May this reality overwhelm your soul. Jesus bears this cross. He arrives at Golgotha and then is shamefully hoisted up into the air and nailed to the wood. And in the midst of this horrific event, as he is experiencing incredible anguish according to his human nature, he looks down and sees his mother. Verse 26, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus uh, certainly had more to say from the cross. We're certain of this from Matthew and Mark and Luke. But John here chooses to highlight Jesus' address to his mother and to John himself. 
And what is absolutely remarkable about this is that even in the midst of his suffering, his present suffering, the the present mental pain, the, the present physical pain, the present emotional pain, in the midst of it all, Christ shows concern for his people. Jesus is commending the care of his mother to the disciple John. He's looking after her, making sure she will be well taken care of. Jesus sees his mother's need in the midst of his own distress and cares for her. Brethren, Christ cares for you. He sees your trouble. He sees your need. You serve an omnipresent God. He knows you. Is there a more comforting reality in these times? In the midst of a chaotic world, Christ sees you. He anthropomorphically has his eye on the entire situation, especially his own, especially those he deeply cares about, and nothing takes him by surprise. He ordained it to be, after all. He cares for us. He cares for us not only as individuals, but he especially cares for us as the church, a new family, a family of believers. You see, when Jesus commends Mary to John, he he bypasses his own unbelieving brethren and leaves her care to the beloved disciple instead. Is this an accident? Is it only because John just so happened to be there? I think that's highly unlikely. Rather, we get a sense that the Lord Jesus Christ, as our elder brother, is bringing into existence a new family based on his atonement. This is a society that is marked by adoption, a society that is not segregated according to race or nationality. It's not predicated upon social standing or economic power. It consists of those whose faith meet at the cross. Those who experience the forgiveness that flows from the cross. The church was in Jesus' sight. This was the joy that was set before him and that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus then says he is thirsty to fulfill the scriptures. The sour wine is given to him. And in verse 30, it says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus says, Tetelestai, it is finished. Jesus took on flesh to give up his life. Now his work is complete in a sense, and he's ready to give himself up. So he bows his head, and he dies. And there are many reasons for this death. One author even wrote a book entitled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. But I think from a meta-narrative perspective, if we can summarize the reason Jesus came to die, the reason he gave himself up was for the glory of God and the good of the church through the gospel. The hope of the gospel is why Jesus gave himself up. And so on this day, on Good Friday, as we prepare to celebrate a resurrected Christ, I'd like to leave you with the purpose for why Christ gave himself up. I'd like to leave you with the power of the gospel. 
I want to share with you these 41 gospel points. These 41 points come from a gospel primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. And they read like this, and I just hope that as you ponder these points, they are a blessing to your soul as we contemplate the purpose for why Jesus came to give himself up. And as we look forward to a resurrected Christ in just a couple days. Our God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to us as the creator and sustainer of our lives. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in our bodies is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure we experience is a gift from his loving hand to us. All that we are and all that we have, we owe to him and to his goodness. Our life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom we live and move and have our being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And he created us with the intention that we might glorify him by finding our soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all of our ways. Yet, we could not have failed this great God more miserably than we have. Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over our lives, we have rebelled against him and have actually sought to exalt ourselves above him. Going our own way and living according to our own wisdom, we have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking ourselves to be wise, we have shown ourselves to be fools. And because of our arrogance, God has every right to damn us to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for ourselves, apart from Christ, we are bound by the guilt of our sins, and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to its various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, we are also utterly deserving and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save ourselves or even make one iota of a contribution to our own salvation. However, what we could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all. Sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for our sins, thereby showing us unfathomable love. God loved us so much that he's willing to suffer the loss of his son, and even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved us so much that he's willing to lay down his life for us. No one could ever love us more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that we have or will commit throughout our lifetimes. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now when our time came and we placed our faith in Jesus, God instantly granted us a great salvation. He forgave us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. He made us his children, adopting us into his family. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us God's power, pours out God's love within our hearts, and who tenderly communicates to our spirits that we are children of God and heirs of eternal glory in heaven. 
In saving us, God also freed us from slavery to any and all sins. We no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over us has been broken. In saving us, God also justified us, and being justified through Christ, we have peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying us, God declared us innocent of our sins and pronounced us righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against us to be completely propitiated upon Jesus, who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now only has love, compassion, and the deepest affection for us. His love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon us and treats us with gracious favor, always working all things together for our ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to us even through trials. Because we are justified ones, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto us. When we sin, God's grace abounds to us all the more, as he graciously maintains our justified status. When we sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against us. His heart is filled with nothing but love for us, and he longs for us to repent and confess our sins to him, so that he might show us the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require our confession before he desires to forgive us. In his heart, he has already forgiven us. And when we come to confess our sins to him, he runs to us, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing us and kissing us, even before we can get the words of confession out of our mouths. God does see our sins, and he is grieved by our sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in our moments of sin, we are not receiving the fullness of his love for us. He even sends chastisement into our lives, but he does so because he is for us, and he loves us, and he disciplines us for our ultimate good. We don't deserve any of this, even on our best day, but this is our salvation, and herein we stand. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you, church. Happy Good Friday.